Rejection most times is the redirection we need to unlock our truest potential. Life puts us in some uncomfortable and unexpected situations despite our efforts and plans. So how do we look at failures as opportunities? How do we deal with life's uncertainties, identify some losses as wins, all while not labeling ourselves as total losers or failures? You'll find out right here on Redirection with Terry Carell. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Redirection with Terry Carell, the podcast. It is brought to you by MasterCard in association with Heineken Zero Zero. Of course, with MasterCard, even though life throws a lot of things at you and life is always lifing, MasterCard just kind of re- uh, reminds us that we should always look for those priceless moments and those moments that make life more meaningful. And of course, with Heineken Zero Zero, same great taste, but with zero alcohol, it's now telling you that now you can. Huge shout out to Toyota Jamaica for sponsoring the facilitation of sign language because, well, inclusion matters. And we have the great Tony Aiken somewhere around my head who will be doing the sign language interpretation for us. Of course, big up to Spaces for creating such a beautiful space for my guests. The color, everything is so warm and all the guests have told us that they love the space. Of course, if you're just stumbling upon me and you have absolutely no idea who I am. Terry Carell is the name. You can find me across all social media platforms at Terry Carell. And of course, if you want to find out all of the other things that I dibble in and I dabble in, you can visit my website, terrycarell.com. And if you listen to these episodes and you hear these stories and you can think of someone or even yourself, if you have a wonderful and amazing redirection story, please go ahead, send me an email and we will follow up to see if you or somebody you know might be the next person in the seat. Now, you're looking at quality production, so I just want to take the opportunity to big up my nice, clean, official production partner, Commercial Concepts. Thank you for enhancing this podcast in the way you have. So, of course, we have those of you listening to the podcast on your preferred podcast platforms, but we still have people like you who are watching for the very first time on YouTube, and I want to thank you. To Brescia, Go Shore Couriers, and of course, Beauty Brands by MDS. We know you guys are the ones in the background, but thank you for believing in the vision. So the question that you ask every single week is who is coming next? Because the conversations and the stories just keep on getting better and better, more open, more honest, right? Um, If you can think about the face of mental health illness or a condition or a disorder, what would that face look like? Does it have a face? And if you could think about the voice of what a mental health advocate would sound like, would you know what that voice would sound like? Well, my next guest is someone who can tell you about her journey to self-discovery, her journey to finding out what her disorders, what her conditions were like, how she was able to manage it, and what are some of the, the tips, the nuggets, the advice she may have for you. She's a hard girl for dead, and she goes by the name of Tamika Coley, but you and I can call her Tammy Sansai. She is the next person in the redirection seat and I cannot wait to speak with her. Season two of the Redirection with Terry Carell podcast is brought to you by MasterCard in association with Heineken 00. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Terry. How are you? I'm wonderful. Anybody ever tell you that we look alike? All the time. <laughs> but have you ever told everyone that like you're the prettier, younger sister? 
No, but I think I'll start now. You, you, you have my permission. Welcome to the show. Thank you for agreeing Thank to sit down asking. with me. Absolutely. I ran into you recently. Mm-hmm. Um, about four of us were invited in May, which was Mental Health Awareness Month, yeah. at the Bellevue Hospital at their new U Park. Such a beautiful serenity park open to everyone. And we were authors who were asked to not only donate our books, a copy of our books for their floating library, but that we were also invited to do a reading. Mm-hmm. So we book upon each other. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> Come sit down, you know, the normal pleasantry. And then you get up and you read a poem from your book, Ard Gal Fidead. And I want us to start off our, our conversation with the poem that you, you read, please. All right. We'll get right into it. All right. So this is from the first section of the book. It's called Musings, and the piece is called Lesson Two, Too Pretty Through the Tears. Mm -hmm. Hello, beautiful. He looks me up and down. Are you here for visitation? If so, you're a bit late. I can't even see what I can do for you at this point. No, I'm not. I'm collecting medication. Oh, pause. Come this way. I step into the brightly lit passage and he now sees that I've clearly been crying for years. What's the matter there? I just told you. Medicine, please. I need it. I follow him into the office. Doctor, nurse, this young lady needs some meds. I think she's very depressed. The doctor turns around. I'll be right with you, Miss Coley. Right, Miss Coley, have a seat here. Nurse will take your vitals while you wait. She takes over. Any diagnosed mental illnesses, Miss Coley? Yes, a few. Okay, fill this out, please. I do so in between silent rivers, incessantly flowing down my face. The doctor comes over and sits with me. She leaves. He asks me a bunch of seemingly innocent, unrelated questions. I respond on autopilot, feeling nothing, until he says... I'm sorry, Miss Coley, but we can't just medicate you, especially with your current mindset. For us to treat you, you'll have to be admitted. Nurse, take her around to the female ward, please. The male nurse from earlier walks in, and my fire returns for a second. No, I can't do that. I am not staying here. I came here to get help. And we're going to help you. Don't worry. It's only until you stabilize, and you will be fine. We're concerned for your safety. So since you live alone, we cannot allow you to leave unless we release you into the care of a family member. It's our policy. He talks to the nurse. Please call the ward and take her around. Hmm. Don't touch me. I am fine. I just need the damn medicine. If I really wanted to die, I wouldn't be here. This is He's clearly used to it and continues to ignore my protests while he escorts me around. The doctor is already gone, and I'm too drained to continue. The nurse. Shame. You're way too pretty to be in a place like this. Or to be depressed all the time. When they let you out, make sure you change your diet and start exercising every day. If you have a boyfriend, get him to work out with you. It's free medicine. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I'll be out in the morning, right? He shrugs. Who knows? You'll be out whenever we can trust you not to do it. Talk to me about that poem. 
um, mm. talk to me about stigma and what you experience beyond that poem. All right, deep question. Yeah. <laughs> Tommy's like, oh, so we're going to start off yeah, like that. Yeah, we're coming out swinging. Absolutely. Right, no problem. This was the poem that you opened up with and you had everyone in rapt attention. Um, and I think it's just very easy to see people every day and to look on people and say, you're so beautiful, you're so pretty, oh, you're so amazing, you're so talented. And we have absolutely no shred of a clue of what people go through. Yeah. So tell me, um, about that poem, where were you and what did you have to even deal with to experience what you wrote about? Well, I wrote this right after I was released. Mm -hmm. So to give you a bit of a backstory, I was diagnosed as bipolar, manic depressive, mm -hmm. um, with ADHD and autism. So all of that going on wow. one time. And what, how old were you when you were diagnosed? When I got the, that diagnosis, which was the most specific, I was 30. Mm. Um, when I was in high school, I was diagnosed as clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. That never really feel like it fits, but I worked with it. Um, so I was going through therapy and so on based on that diagnosis. Right. Then when I was in my 20s, I got a further diagnosis that I also have anxiety concurrently with the clinical depression. So I was like, all right, that's on a little bit more on point, mm -hmm. but still it didn't really feel like that's what I was experiencing. And at age 30, actually, a friend of mine, she said, um, you know, I think you should get like a deeper evaluation because you don't seem to fit what everyone else fits right. when they get that diagnosis. And I was like, you know, I've always thought that myself because she has um, borderline personality and she has bipolar. Really? And we had similar experiences. So she's saying, well, if you don't buy it, get a third opinion. Of course. You know, those people don't have to be right. Correct. And if you get a better diagnosis, then you'll actually know how to, how to approach it, of course. It. And that's what I was looking for at the time. Mm -hmm. So she said, you know what, your birthday is coming up. I will pay for it. Just go. And that's something that I really want to, to pinpoint because support is very, very important on yeah. your mental health journey. Yeah. So when I was 30, I got that evaluation for my birthday and it was so long. It took like half a day and I was like, wow, like... What kind of thing this? But at the end of it, um, I got the bipolar, I got the anxiety, the autism, the ADHD, and also um, CPTSD, which is... What is that? CPTSD. So chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. And that comes after years of emotional neglect and abuse. So all of that. So let me, so let me ask you this. Because if I have to go into the doctor just because I have an asthma attack, I'm just like, oh my gosh. How did you feel realizing that it wasn't just one thing or two things, but all of these things compounded? Were you relieved or were you now scared, concerned that now you had to manage all of these other things together? For me, it felt like one thing caught up in chunks. Mm. So I was actually relieved because... The way to handle depression and anxiety is completely different from the way to handle bipolar disorder. It's mm -hmm. completely different from, you know, the stressors and so on that affect somebody who is autistic. So once I understood, I wanted to get that clearer understanding. Right. And once I heard those things and read up about it and familiarized myself with it and could recognize what I experienced, 
in those things, I was like, oh, I'm good. I know how to deal with this. What about your relationships? Because, you know, and, and, and you can also correct me because even having this conversation with you allows me to even learn. Because I think sometimes we, no, not sometimes, a lot of the time society misuses words. Yeah. So bipolar, a lot of us think the person goes from north to south very quickly. As to whether that is true or not, I guess I'll allow you to let us know. But how are you able to manage relationships with friends, family, people who you love, people mm -hmm. who you cherish and adore? Do they always understand or did they even understand you coming up from high school, you know, continuing along into the professional world? Did you lose relationships because of this thing that's happening inside of you that you weren't yet able to, 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 to identify? Definitely. So as a child, I was always described as the moody child. Hmm. So people knew that for the most part, I'm even keel. But <laughs> it can be that I'm very hyperactive sometimes. Yeah. And it can be that I'm really silent sometimes. And it can be that my temper just flares up hmm. over something that seems small to other people, but it's massive to me. So they'll just say, oh, she's cool. She's just moody sometimes. You have to hmm. just look out for that. But outside of that... She good. And the moodiness is not something, or the moodiness, because, you know, that's right. not really it. Correct. But that is not something that was a constant. It mm. was a every now and then thing. So people are just like, yeah, sometimes she gets in a some mood. That's, you know not, the, that's not the person, girls right. That's not the personality yeah. person. So that's what it was. It was seen as. People just thought, I got moody sometimes, and mm -hmm. that was it. And even in terms of being diagnosed as depressed in third form, I remember my, I didn't tell my family because I just knew that they wouldn't understand it. It, it just wasn't something that really? we got. <laughs> and I knew that based on how I was raised, how we dealt with things. So I instinctively knew that there is no way I could tell them this thing because they wouldn't get it. So you were going through all of these feelings, all of these emotions. You knew instinctively that something was yeah. wrong. Like there's something wrong. Yeah. You can't really pinpoint it, but you didn't feel comfortable enough sharing it yeah. sharing it so you carried this did you speak to guidance counselors or um anyone at all not willingly at first not willingly at first but after having you know some incidents at mm -hmm. school um, my best friend actually she recommended that the guidance counselor come to me because she was like she's not gonna come to you so you have to find a reason to engage her in a conversation and then let her get comfortable talking to you. Mm. Because she had found a suicide note that I wrote. And I tore it up because I didn't really plan on going through with it after thinking about it. But she said she just had a gut feeling. And yeah. she went in the bin and take it out and glue it up. I'd carried it to the guidance counselor and told the guidance counselor, listen, she now go come to you. And I can't tell her to come to you because I shouldn't have taken this out of the bin in right, the first place. Right. So you go to her and Find just tell her you that can. you're concerned. Mm -hmm. Tell her that you notice some things, you're concerned, and see if you can get her to speak to you. And that is that is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's when the guide, our guidance counselor at Hampton was actually a trained clinical psychologist wow so she gave me an evaluation and she's like you're definitely depressed i definitely see that 
and she kind of put me I was too young to take antidepressants because I was 13 in third form I wow. started high school at 10 early mm-hmm. yeah and it was a boarding school so the whole adjustment period it was very rough for me very different growing up sheltered so I just felt like I was thrown out at sea mm-hmm. and that made it even harder going through just the natural hormonal changes of being a teenager of course and that so and the guidance counselor didn't tell your parents i mean i know you wouldn't have wanted I mean, I to later found out that she gave them a heads up because really and truly if you find out that a child is suicidal you have to let correct. the you have to let the parents or correct. the guardians know correct so they handled it well because she told them not to alarm me because mm-hmm. that might actually trigger something yes so i found out that they knew but I thought I was keeping it from them the entire time. How are you managing like your academics, you know, being depressed and that can look like many things. Um, Sometimes grades slip. Sometimes the interest in doing extracurricular activities that people once loved to do, they stop doing. Like there is usually, you know, a touch and go in terms of what people are, are, are interested in. Did anything manifest in terms of being at school, whether it was grades, extracurricular activities? Did you stop doing things, start doing other things? For me, it was more the social interaction. Mm -hmm. I would still do well in school. I would still do the extracurricular activities because I learned how I trained myself how to have a good poker face. So I would show up to the things I needed to show up for so that people wouldn't question me. But I would just not speak to my friends at all. It would just be me after all of that. And that is something that I did for years. Did you ever feel like the weirdo? Oh, all Especially the time. after being diagnosed with, with depression. Did you ever ask, like, why me in comparison to everyone else? In terms of the why me, not so much because mm-hmm. I was the weirdo from a very small age. <laughs> so that, that was my comfort zone already. I already yeah. knew I was the weirdo. That mm-hmm. didn't bother me. But I did wonder, you know, like, what, what caused that? Mm-hmm. Because I kept hearing that at that age, you know, you don't really experience those things. And I was like, okay, well, why am I experiencing it at this age then? You know, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And it kind of triggered me just to get more curious. Yeah. And to start reading, because I loved to read. So I just started to find every kind of book on the brain and mental health and psychology and everything. And I started reading them in high school. And I just continued to read them over the years. So everything that came up that I didn't understand, Mm -hmm. I just researched it. Mm -hmm. And that helped a lot. You mentioned that you wrote a suicide note that you tore up because at that moment in time, it's not that you wanted to do it, but maybe that was just an outlet at the time. Did that change? Did that... um, did that idea of, no, I don't really want to do it, did that change to, you know, I really don't think I am meant for this space anymore or I don't think the world has anything to offer me? Was there a transition when you didn't want it to when you really did want to? Several times. The first time I thought about suicide, I was eight. And I don't, re- I don't even remember how I knew suicide existed. I didn't know it existed until I got older. Somehow I discovered it and I was like, that's the thing I need to do. Why? I just felt really overwhelmed and I felt like, why am I here? You know, like it just felt like life was really hard. Really? Yes. And, was and it, I remember was it I was really being bullied hard? at the time mm. by an older, um, an older girl. She was in my community and she was a problem child. Like she eventually ended up in like juvie prison or something like that. But she was like a legit bully and 
I was assigned to help her learn how to read because even though she was older than me, she couldn't read very well Mm -hmm. and she wasn't responding to the teacher. So they're like, okay, she's good with children. You're bright. You read well. You teach her. That was a complete nightmare. And that is really how the bullying started. Did she bully just verbally or also physically? Physically. Did you tell your parents? No. When you look back on it, do you regret not telling them or do you ever think to yourself maybe I should have and maybe they would have intervened earlier? I think I recognized very early that they were very overwhelmed Mm. and I didn't want to add anything more to their plate. So because I was a sickly child, I had asthma, you know, I was always in and out of the doctor's office and I was just like, this is just going to be one more problem. I can't bother tell them this. I can deal with this by myself. Even though I was eight, I was like, Yeah, this is a school problem. I'm not going to bring this home. So that is how I matched it out in my brain. And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to save them this trouble. Yeah. And how long did you have to endure the bullying from somebody who, by the way, ironically, you were trying to help? Yeah, I think it was about a year and a half. Because that's when she was actually taken out of the community and institutionalized. So for the whole time period that she was around... I had to deal with it. Having experienced this at such a a young age, and we are seeing statistically, we're seeing it in the news, not just globally, but locally, we are seeing eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds. I mean, we're seeing students and children before they even get to high school, not just ideating, but actually going through with it. Yeah. Um, Sitting from where you sit, and we're going to get into, of course, how you transition and the work that you do and the deep work that you had to do and are still doing, but... What advice or tips do you have for even parents, considering you're not the first interviewee who has said this, where they felt the need as minors to protect their parents, where they said that the parents had way too much and they didn't want to add, and so they kept a lot in. Um, And parents that may not necessarily know how to identify when things are going south, um, what advice do you have for them, just in your own from your own experience? Well, I think the most important thing is to have a clear understanding of how your child is normally. Mm. Because if you don't know that, when something changes, you're not going to pick it up. It's very likely that children either are not going to tell you because they're trying to protect you or they won't have the language to explain what is going on. Good point. So you're going to have to be very um, observant Mm -hmm. and very perceptive. So if you have a good feeling don't brush it off actually follow up with it ask them if they're okay Mm -hmm. notice if anything changing i noticed for me i think that's when i developed insomnia like i it was very hard for me to go to sleep it was very hard for me to stay asleep and when i actually went to sleep i had all these nightmares they didn't really know why that was happening and they thought it was because i was watching a lot of tv right but it really was that But I wasn't explaining that, so it would come out in my sleep. And that is when my sleeping patterns changed. Also, I never really used to eat very much, and I started to eat even less. So most of the time, I think for children, it's things like basic things like that. Mm -hmm. Eating, sleeping, playing, um, or grades Mm -hmm. that gets affected. Because that is really what you have agency over as a child. Everything else is your parents decide. That's true. So that's really how it's going to come up. Very good point. So you have now gotten this diagnosis. You always figured something was 
kind of off. You have this amazing friend who says, hey, you know what? Go and seek help, get a better diagnosis, and then you'll be able to fully understand what Tammy has to deal with in order to manage it. Yeah. What was that process like for you? Now that you have the diagnosis, it's, it's bipolar, it's... It's ADHD, ADHD, autism, autism and CPTSD. How do you move from that point on? And at this point in time, are you now telling your parents, all right, so this is really what's going on with me? Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember when I told them. I think I didn't tell them until that point, until I had a diagnosis officially and I clearly understood it mm -hmm. because my family is one of those tough it out and push through kind of families. We don't really, we don't really have that kind of emotional intelligence to deal with those complex, dark emotions. Mm -hmm. it's, we understand anger, we understand happiness, we understand exhaustion. That's pretty much it. That's the only thing on the spectrum. Yeah. Outside of that, it's just like, no, we don't have time for that. Mm. So I was like, all right, how do I explain this in a way that they get it and realize that it's something that I will now need to manage and all of that stuff. So that in itself was a process um, because not everybody accepted it. And received. And received it. And some were just like, mm, just, just go and do your work. Just do your thing. Like, don't, don't own that up. Don't hug that up. Like, you're good. And I'm like, I am good. But I also have things to deal with. How do we, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate families and society where many of us have always been taught that and a nothing fair for complain about. That, you know stress? You know no stress. Mm. You pay bills. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of us say it, and I don't think all of us always understand how insensitive it is. Yeah. And that emotions are valid, whether it is something that you would have gone through in this particular manner. But what I am feeling is, is, is valid. Or the fact that a lot of older persons look at the younger generation and say that either you're too oversensitive, you guys overreact, and as you get a little bit of discomfort, you complain and you're fickle and you're weak. How do we have these kinds of conversations, not just with parents, but with co-workers or employers because mm -hmm. these are real spaces that we have, have to be in. So yeah. how do we navigate these conversations where people ready for just say, are this you come about? What kind of depressed you depressed? After that, thing <laughs> no exists. How do you navigate that um, with, with people who are insensitive, even if they don't know they're insensitive? It's always difficult, to be honest with you. It's not an easy thing to navigate that kind of conversation. And a lot of the times, after you get the cold shoulder the first time, you have to risk it. Mm. and revisit it at a different time when they seem more approachable, less stressed, mm -hmm. more receptive. I have noticed that when you're speaking to men about it, um, the best way to bring it across is to do it when their hands are working. <laughs> so, wow. so if you want to talk to them about something deep, make sure that they've had <sighs> busy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember how I figured that out. But I realized that and that seems to work very well. Yeah. So, not like if they're deep in something, you're going to stop them in the middle. Right. Engage them in doing something and start the conversation. The conversation more likely to flow. As opposed to sitting down, yeah, a man like this, and having a conversation. Say, we need to talk. Mm -hmm. That just is going to raise up the anxiety and make them feel defensive and all of that right. stuff. So, say, help me move the box here. And when I move the box, say, you know, me are doing something. Mm -hmm. That's the way I found that that works. Wow. And in terms of dealing with women, just kind of wait until we're in a better mood. Mm. If you see that it's a 
high energy, anxious kind of day when there's a lot on the agenda, we don't really focus well in them kind of space there. Mm-hmm. So when you feel more calm and so on, more likely broach the conversation with a woman. Mm-hmm. Of course, that don't work for everybody. But I have found that that works a lot of the time. So I tend to do that. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that you just have to have the conversation multiple times. If it is somebody you want to keep in your life, you're going to have to have the conversation multiple times. If it's somebody where you can do it out or you only need to deal with them on a certain level, deal with them on that level and don't bring it up again. Hmm. I like that. And I appreciate the frankness. So we're, and, I, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying, we're, we're doing the backstory and we're getting closer to the, the poem yeah. that you wrote. So you are now diagnosed. You're now managing it. Uh, you're working. Are you working for an employer? Are you in um, college, university? At what stage of your career or your, your, your stage, phase, are, are you at at this point? I am at a point where I can consult mm-hmm. and freelance. So I have tried the corporate spaces. And to be honest, they're not friendly to people mm-hmm. who are dealing with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Either it becomes a thing of, you can't be on our health insurance because those medications are too expensive. Oof. Or <laughs> are you sure you can manage the work? Even, if, your even if you were managing the work fine before, but once any news of it comes in, it becomes, you're sure you can do this because, you know, we're very touchy now. You know, we don't know. They're handling you with kid gloves and then that makes you feel weird. Or they're the insensitive remarks. You know, I, did, I had to leave one job because the, the owner found out that I had a mental health blog at the time and he basically said, you just need to find a man and breed. Once you do that, you don't have nothing else for your mind. And I was like, right. So I'm not coming back here. You are kidding me, right? I am not. So the answer... We were also in the lunchroom at the time. So everyone else was around. So his... How common is that? How common is it? I mean, sadly... That is more common than the acceptance and understanding, which is why a lot of people tend to just not disclose at all. And you chose to disclose, um, is it, I wouldn't want to say during your interview, is it that typically you would gauge to say, do you disclose it before? So you get the call. I usually don't. You don't. I usually don't. If it comes up, I address it. But because I know that I'm at a point where I'm very functional, if it doesn't come up, I don't disclose it. But what That's if you really have how, an episode? If I, well, that is why I used to find jobs that I could do like hybrid because oh. I can manage. If, if it's a day when I need to work from home, I just say, hey, this is a work from home day. And then I don't have to address it with anyone except myself. Oh. However, because um, I started with a mental health blog and then that started to attract attention once I got into jam and all of that, people start asking me to come and speak at things and all of those kinds of events. You couldn't hide that. Mm. So it would come up at some point. And then when it came up, I'd say, hey, this is the case. I still can't believe the man look at you and tell you all you need to do is find a man and breed. As if that is ever the answer for all of the world's problems. He said women are very hormonal, you know. You just need to find a man and breed. And then once you do that, you will have nothing else to worry about. And on that note, talk to me about being too pretty. So the stigma with mental health, as we've always heard it, has always been, well, you're mad. Yeah. Without really knowing or even caring to know all of these different things. And God bless people. We know that where we are at now, we mm-hmm. weren't at years ago. Yeah, we, just, we didn't even use the term mental health. It was just either you're mad 
or you're not mad, yeah. right? And if you're mad, you go sit down in a hospital, you get your straight jacket, and of course, media and, and movies also perpetuated mm-hmm. the idea that madness was madness. Now that we have, um, you know, all of these different answers, we still have a lot of stigma attached. Definitely. And one of the ones that you don't hear about but we know exists is the fact that you are too pretty to have mental health disorder or condition. Yeah. Sure, if you're fat, if you're ugly according to society's stand- standards, maybe it's genetic. You know, they find excuses where other people have an excuse to right. have mental health issues. But what kind of mental health issues you could you have, have, and, have and you're, exactly. and you're pretty? Yeah. Going back to your poem... What has that conversation and experience been like for you? Very similar to that experience at work. Um, people are always, they either assume that the reason why you're having these episodes is because you don't have no man and you, <laughs> you're stressed <laughs> and sad. And I'm just like, yeah, that's all life has to offer, men. Of course, that's the reason, you know. So I don't know why people think that, you know, the way you look or... So what I decided to do was just try and use my experience and educate people so that they know that it's not something that has a face or an income bracket or a residence or anything like that. Really and truly mental health is a spectrum Mm -hmm. and in the same way that physical health is a spectrum. You can be good, you can be bad, you can be somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And same way it is with physical health where most people are somewhere in the middle. It's the same way with mental health. And something can happen and just send you further down the spectrum. Correct. At any time. Were you always this bold and confident about speaking, not just about your experience, but the mental health journey, what other people go through, becoming an an activist as well as an advocate for persons who are similar to you? Have you always been like this? Or did this grow? Was it thrust upon you? How, How... um, a bit of both. Mm-hmm. At first, I didn't speak about it because, of course, there is stigma, there is shame, there is all of that. And then I wanted to understand it myself, so I started to write about it. Mm. And the more I learned, I wanted somewhere to go back to where I could look at what I was learning, look at how far I was coming, all of that. So that became the blog. And at first, the response to the blog was terrible. Like, there were people bashing me and telling me that I'm lying and I'm seeking attention and nothing is wrong with me and I seem fine. There was this one commenter who always was saying, well, if you walk yourself, go and do that. Like, why are you coming on the internet every day? Clearly, it's attention you want. And I was like, okay, I don't know who this person is, but they clearly have a problem with me. But so I had to go through that. And after that wave of Did those people, things ever trigger you? I don't mean to, to, to cut you, but considering your own mental health journey, considering you are trying to do deep work, considering you're trying to also, you know, use your writing as a form of therapy as well, uh, and you have to avoid your triggers, how did you manage to block out those kinds of persons who could be not only detractors, but could also be triggers and catalysts for yourself? It varies by the day. So if I'm having Mm. a bad day, I don't read the comments. If I know that I am more stable mentally, I will go through and read it. Because feedback is good. So sometimes, you know, somebody might say, oh, this one too long. Make it shorter next time. And I'm like, all right, I can make it shorter next time. But of course, when you're doing that, you're going to see the person who is saying, go and do it then. Mm -hmm. So if I know that I'm not in a good place, I just avoid it for that day. Mm. And I was going to therapy at the time, so I had a healthy outlet that could help me to process certain things and and not take it on. So that was more helpful. And in the first wave of people, 
they were the backlash people. Then the second wave of people were the, I am the same way, help me. And then the third wave of people was, come and talk about this at my class mm. kind of people. So, you know, there's, there's different kinds of things happening with it. And that's kind of how the activism and the advocacy started. Does that mean that society is changing even though it's slow based on the first wave, the second wave, the third wave and gauging how the response has been? Would you say it's because people are more open, people are more curious or is it that people are realizing that they have more and more family members who are mm. suffering from it? What do you think kind is... Kind of. Um, our hand has been forced a bit. Mm. I noticed that the uptick in people who either reach out for help or reach out for me to come and speak to them. That happened after there was an entertainer by the name of Delos yes. who committed suicide. Yes. After Delos's death, my traffic went up a lot and people just started flooding me. Hmm. And that is when I started the support group because I was like, I cannot help everybody. So we need people who can help everybody. So that is what really started to force people's hands. Mm. And each time there is a, a big public suicide, I notice that it, it floods more mm -hmm. and more. So yes, our hand is being forced. And then COVID again, where everybody, you know, all our outlets were stripped away one time. You can't go gym, you can't go to the beach, you can't go to work, you can't go to school and interact release. with people, you can't see your friends. So everybody's just inside dealing with their brain. And then the mental health issues start to come up and then the trauma starts to come up and all of that. So I started to get more people reaching out to me in that time and after mm. as well. Of course, going back to the book, you said you went to pick up your meds. Yeah. So some people might still be wondering from the beginning of this podcast, yeah. this conversation going, but meds from where? Nurse, doctor, ward, you were released. Yeah. Where did you eventually end up? I went to the pharmacy there mm -hmm. because at the time it was 2016. Mm -hmm. So mental health meds are more accessible now. But of course, in some pharmacies, it's a lot more expensive. They are now covered. A lot of them are now covered by NHF. Yes. At the time, my NHF card only had the asthma medication on it. It didn't have the mental health medication on it because I had just been um, properly diagnosed mm -hmm. and it took a while for them to update it. So I was trying to find a pharmacy that was affordable that I could go and get the meds without having to spend 30 grand. Of course. So I'm like, all right, let me go to Yui. Yui never had it. They're like, go to Bellevue and get it. Mm -hmm. They called them and they're like, they have it. Just go down there. We're calling ahead. Just go down there, get it. So I'm like, seems like a simple process. I'd never been to Bellevue before. Right. But I was like, they have a pharmacy. They have the meds. We're sure. It's affordable. I'm going there to get it. And just for context, because I know that we have persons who are watching and listening and they're from different parts of the world. So Bellevue Hospital for us, um, depending on who you speak to, right? So if you're speaking to the older generation, they would probably call it a madhouse. That's literally the stigma that was attached. Um, and in some spaces and places and pockets, there are probably some people who still address it as such or describe it as such. It was a place where people would leave family members who they couldn't understand. Mm -hmm. They couldn't um, figure out what was wrong with them. And so they would sometimes leave them there. But really and truly, it is... Uh, and a hospital that specializes and treats patients that have psychological, mental health issues. And it's the largest, I believe, within the, the, the Caribbean. So there is still some stigma, but I know that the hospital is trying 
through education, through mm-hmm. awareness, to change how people view um, view what the hospital does. And so that is the, the hospital that Tammy is referring to in terms of going to the pharmacy that was attached yeah. to Bellevue Hospital. Right. So I had no idea that going there, I was going to be assessed mm-hmm. before I could even buy the medication. Had I known that, I probably would not have gone. <laughs> Because I knew that there is no way I would have passed an evaluation at that time. Mm-hmm. I knew that, which is why I was going to get the medication in the first place. Because I should have been taking it for a long time. I wasn't. And I started to feel myself sliding. And I was like, you know what? Before it reached any further, let me just go get this thing and Correct. start take it. However, I went there. And funnily enough, Dr. O, who the park is named after, he's the one who was there at the time. And he saw me and was just like Nuh-uh. he was about to leave and he was just like no no I will take her let me evaluate her and I was like weird okay no problem don't want any I just came to pick up my meds but okay yeah so I was like strange I didn't know you had to go through this so I was already annoyed because I feel like I'm going all over the place not getting this thing and but he was very gentle and he had a very calm demeanor so I was like all right I'll talk to him and he was just talking to me, so how is life? How is he day? How is work? Oh, so you, who do you live with? And it seemed like a regular conversation. So I'm there talking to this man, talking to this man. And then he was like, yeah, you can't go home though. And I said, but what do you mean, sir? I'm ready for go home. And he's like, no, that's not how it works. If you're a danger to yourself and you have nobody mm-hmm. to monitor you, we cannot let you leave the premises. As policy. And I'm like... So is this a new policy? Because nobody never tell me that. He's <laughs> like, like, no, it's always been like this. Like legally, yes. if we release you and you actually harm yourself, like we can They're get complicit. sued, I can lose my license, all of that. So until there's somebody who can either stay at home with you or whose mm-hmm. home you can go to, we cannot let you leave. So I say, but sir, I mean, one live. My people are in St. Elizabeth. I don't come from here, so... Suppose it takes six months. He's just like, you're going to have to be here for six months. So I start to panic. I'm just like, but there must be a work around. He's like, there's no work around. We let you out when we think you're not suicidal anymore. So you were admitted? I was admitted. Into Bellevue? Yeah. And we have, was it the ward? Yeah, who, the who, female ward. Who, who, who was just saying you? Pretty. So it felt like... It was a very dramatic experience. As mm-hmm. much as I'm talking about it, simple. I just like, it felt like I was going into prison because you just see these two big strong men come. How we see them in the movies. Yes. These two big strong men come and they're escorting you down the hallway. And I'm just like, where them people here carry me go? Like, so, and then, of course, they tell you, say, you have to give over all of your belongings. You only get one phone call. And I say, Lord Jesus, I pray for this. Who did now you come call? out here, so. Who did you call? Well, I tried calling. I have. I have an uncle and an aunt in Kingston. I tried calling them. I wasn't getting them. Because I was, I was asking them, you know, if I don't get the person that I call, can I call somebody Correct. else? They say, well, you can't call until you get somebody. But you can only speak to, to one, one person. person. So I say, all right. I called them. Wasn't getting them. I know that my father was out of town working, so I never bother tried to call him. So then I was like, all right, I'm going to have to call my best friend, Ashley. She was here at the time. Jeez. And I called her, and she's like, all right. Because she was out of town working on a shoot. And she called my boyfriend and said, listen, we have to find a way to get some family member for Tammy to come get her out of the place. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's so like she's not coming out. And it, I was there for four days. Mm-hmm. And that is how it actually Is there anything you out. learned about yourself in those four days? Um, being alone, 
um, being forced to confront this new chapter, mm -hmm. um, not just getting meds and leaving. Um, is there anything that you learned about yourself in those four days? Holy. Like what? The first thing I learned was that I'm not that special. <laughs> that was the Whoa. first thing. <laughs> the first thing I learned was that I'm not that special. Because when I went in, I realized that even though I advocate um, and I do the advocacy and the activism and I understand mental health and all of that. So there was still a part of me that felt like I shouldn't be there. Mm. When I got you in there mm -hmm. and I saw that there were all kinds of women in there. There was this chartered accountant lady. There was this girl I knew from shoots because she was a model. There was a law student. Like, there were all kinds of people in there, from vendor to lawyer. And I was just like, wow. What them people they are doing here? And then when I had conversations with them, even the ones that were in there for, like, psychosis, they were normal conversations. Like, they weren't telling me any craziness. I had great conversations with them in there. And I was like, yo, this thing is really misunderstood. And the stigma really don't make no sense. Because if you sat down without being in that space, having a conversation with any of those women, you wouldn't think you wouldn't anything is wrong them. with them. Hmm. However, I was also there to see them go through their episodes and realize why they're in there. But at the same time, I'm realizing that this is not a constant thing. It's like an ebb and flow kind of vibe. So I was like, hmm. And it's not a one-size-fits-all? No, it, is, hmm. it wasn't. So the first thing that you realize is that you're not, I'm it's not, not unique, it's not special. Yeah. Anything else that you learned? And then I learned that the stigma doesn't make any sense. Mm. So I think that was the biggest takeaway for me. Mm -hmm. And I, re I recognize that if people, like people didn't get the opportunity that I got to actually sit and speak to people who are going through this and realize that they're just like you and me, but just with probably with more issues, mm -hmm. probably with more things on their plates, yeah. probably with less support, you know? So once I recognized that, I was like, okay, I think I have a better angle to do this advocacy work from now because if I didn't come here, I wouldn't see it like this. Right. Did it remove any any shame that you might have still been carrying by seeing other women who are clearly performers in their different industries, categories, facets in, you know, in, in life. Having seen them there, did it also help you to realize that, you know, well, one, you're not alone, but that two, the shame that you've been carrying, maybe you should release it some more? Definitely. Mm. That was a big thing for me. I didn't, I didn't feel any shame at all. Mm. I felt at home. I felt like I was around people who understood me. Yeah. And the shame came for me when I came out. And people were like, oh, Bellevue, where you come from? Don't come here, so. Wow. That is when I, I was confronted with that. So Are these, and were, was this from people, like family, friends? Yeah, man, people close. People close. Even the, the employer situation and all of that. Yeah. So... Again, I came out and had this wall to just, just a buck up in a wall every way I turn. And I was like, hmm, all right. So I know who to eliminate. We keep on over there, so me Correct. over here, so. And I just started to curate the space. I think it's so interesting when people, you know, talk, especially companies we see a lot of it and you know it's a lot of washing i call it you know you have the companies that claim that they're all about environmentally friendly and mm -hmm. sustainable and we call it greenwashing um we have those that that claim that you know they're woman empowered female empowered mm -hmm. and and it's like pink washing it's there's a lot of washing uh, going around and i think it's interesting when 
you see so many companies, especially in Mental Health Awareness Month, stepping up and talking about mental health matters and being balanced and mm -hmm. having co-workers have personal time and this time and how you know people need to take their days and take their casual days and mm -hmm. and you know you have all of this conversation taking place, but then you have places that will still look at you and say, "So, adapted take a day offer," mm -hmm. or they challenge and label you for having an episode rather than say. How can, How can we, we support, support you? you? Yeah. Is there anything that we can do that can help you better manage? You know, is it that you are overwhelmed and maybe we need to take some work from you and give it to mm -hmm. Sharon or Michael in the office? Um, there's just a lot of performance, Definitely. I think. Everything is very performative. And, and, and somebody, you know, in your position as an advocate um, and you represent... Jamhan mm -hmm. um, and different kinds of organizations that try to get these conversations to move from just saying mental health matters to actually putting in the work. What advice can you leave for persons who might be watching, who may be in leadership positions, supervisors, decision makers, people who are at the table, board members? How can they be catalysts in this kind of conversation? Well, I would say the first step is make it okay for people to talk about their mental health at work. Mm -hmm. Don't turn up your nose at somebody if you find out that they're having an anxiety attack in the bathroom. Don't ask them about the work right after they come out of the bathroom and Good make point. it worse. <laughs> you know, like you have to know when to bring up what. So you need that discretion. You need that compassion. You need that empathy. Mm -hmm. That would be the first thing that I say. Be kind to the employee. Don't think about them just as a number or a person who you're paying. Think about them as a human being who is going through something. Mm -hmm. Because I guarantee you, if you help them, if you support them, they will work better for you. Mm -hmm. But if they feel unsupported, you're less likely to get anything out of them. So think about that first. You supporting them helps them to support your business better. Mm -hmm. And then move from there to how can I support them? Yes. Is it that you need the meds and the health insurance? Is it that you need us to bring a therapist into the space every now and then? Is it that you need to work from home some other days? Mm. Is it that you need to take a mental health day when you feel like it's too much for you? Does your workload need to be cut? You know, it's not that hard to support someone. Just figure out, just have a real conversation with them to figure mm -hmm. out what they need. Sometimes it's about work and sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes they're in an abusive relationship at home and when it's getting to the end of the day, they start to panic because they're scared to go home. back into it. So if you notice that it's certain times a day that this thing is coming up, have a conversation with them and find out, you know, what can happen mm -hmm. because you could be saving their life. And what about confidentiality, which I understand is something that sometimes causes people to withdraw and lock up when they actually do disclose and that information is now taken at the office and it is spread throughout. So it isn't that key persons or key leaders find out about it, but don't the woman in the canteen know, mm -hmm. say, oh, that you have, you know, say X, Y, Z. How do we also manage confidentiality? That is a tough one because, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, we love chat. Jesus. We love people business in Jamaica, and the more juicy it is, is the more the we spread it. it is. Yeah, the and more you won't be the it. first to spread the news. Yeah. So that mm. is a very tough one. Mm -hmm. um, you're definitely going to need discretion in who you share the information with, but mm -hmm. sometimes you don't know. Sometimes Correct. you feel like the person is a good person to tell until until something happens. Mm -hmm. So. 
it's really difficult to navigate that mm-hmm. kind of space. But we're just bringing it up in this conversation to remind us that if we really do claim to want to help, then being someone of integrity, being someone who can honor people's stories and people's issues is going to be very important. Definitely. Um, don't be a hypocrite, in other words. Like nobody needs a hypocrite and what you could be doing is making it harder and, and creating and triggers. And more dangerous. And more dangerous for people. I'm going to try to squeeze in three more questions for you. Love. You mentioned, for example, a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. When you have mental health um, issues and there are disorders that can be across the spectrum, bipolar, what... How can the boyfriend help? How does the boyfriend, the partner help? And this could be um, a, 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 an answer that helps partners who have partners. Going through it. Going through it, going through episodes. Um, how has he helped you? Um, and what do partners need to consider if they have to deal with a partner who is going through mental health issues? Don't take it on. Don't take it personal. Mm. A lot of the times you may feel like it is something that you did or, you know, like that the person is withdrawing from you or that the relationship is not doing it for them. Most of the times it's not that. Mm. A lot of the times it's internal. So separate yourself from it. Be a detached observer and approach it from that angle first. Mm -hmm. Don't immediately go in with the viewpoint that, oh, she vexed with me or, oh, she is lashing out at me or, mm-hmm. you know, think about it as, all right, she going through this again. What me can do? So I would, I would say speak to them about it before it actually happens because when you're going through an episode, it's the worst time to try yes. and address something like that. Yes. So bring it up early and figure out, you know, when you're going through this, what do you need? You need space? Do you need me to sit with you? Do you want to take a walk? You know, what are the kind of things that work for you and how can I help you? To work mm-hmm. through those things. Beautiful. And if it is me, what do you want? Do you want to talk about it with me? Do you want to allow me out for an hour? Like, what works? So communication also yeah. helps. And also, for people who are suicidal, I would say, I always encourage the people that I counsel and my friends and so on to have like a, a code word. Because mm. it's still such a, a touchy subject and it's difficult to bring up. And it makes you feel really vulnerable to go to somebody and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. So for me, I came up with this thing and I just said, red banana. Just, it's, it's weird. People don't see red banana all the time. So I've I just, never seen a red banana. Exactly. <laughs> so I told my friends and my family, and I said, listen, if I text you red banana, this is what is happening. Yes. So you know, sir, it is a crisis mode. Yes. So that way, I avoid feeling that inner shame of coming to you to speak about it. And you avoid questioning me and further triggering me about mm-hmm. it. You understand right away what is happening. And I understand right away that you are somebody who is willing to help me. Yeah. And is it fair to disclose to someone who might be courting you, someone who likes you, is crushing on you, who is interested in you? Um, how, how does someone with mental health know when or how to disclose without the fear of persons saying, lad, I'm a, I'm a mad girl this. Now I'm going to take myself because I'm going to know where I'm You know, how do they know and how do you even navigate when to disclose to someone who you may really like and who may like you in return? And of course, we know that this is not cookie cutter. That's why I'm asking yeah. you personally as Tammy. Yeah. It's not as a trial and error, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I have had relationships where 
People have used it against me. People have mm. thrown it in my face in arguments. People have used it to get out of things that they were doing. To say, you sure you see that? Or you sure you have having an episode? Because, yeah. Remember, say, you're not 200 up there, you know. Wow. So, I've, I've definitely had to go through those and then learn how to filter people much better. Also, I would say, if you're being courted, you don't really need to disclose anything because you don't have no commitment to the person. Mm. So, don't feel pressured to dish out your whole life story and give somebody who you're not even in a relationship with. Mm -hmm. And you when, don't even know you don't owe where them, it's going. You don't owe them that. They're not going to tell you everything that is going wrong with them. You're going to have to be in the relationship to find out. Mm -hmm. However, when you get into that space, you can say, hey, this is something I deal with from time to time. This is how I manage it. These are the tools that work for me. If you're a suicidal person, you can say, this is who you can call. This is where I usually go, whatever. If it is, you know, bipolar or personality disorder, one of those things that takes you out of yourself mm -hmm. to a point where you might need somebody to step in, give them the tools so that if you can do it, them can come to your rescue. Beautiful. Thank you very much. The last two questions for you. You've been through a lot, ebbs and flows, ins and outs, trying to figure out who you are, how you fit in this world, how you serve in this world for others as well. What do you think is one of your most priceless moments, an experience that has made your life meaningful? <laughs> Tommy's like, whoa, you hit me with that yeah, one. Um, yeah. Very good question. I think there has been more than one. Mm -hmm. um, there was, a, a, what was it? I think it was the Commonwealth General Secretary came here to have a meeting with government officials and entrepreneurs and so on in the space to talk about, you know, what the CARICOM budget needed to be about. And I noticed there was no mental health anywhere mm. on that program. And no stakeholder was invited, nothing like that. It was all finance and tech and all kind of thing. I may say, but none of these people can go to work if everybody mad out. True. I am going to this meeting. So I just dress up like I was supposed to be there. <laughs> And we just pass the person at the door. We not sign in because we, we can't sign in because we're not supposed to there. So I went in there and I was like, what is the most effective way to frighten these people so they can put some money towards this thing? Mm -hmm. Because I was, I was really overwhelmed and frustrated because mm -hmm. everybody was coming to me. I went on Smile Jamaica for Jamhan and they put my email address there. And Bombarded. it was like, I had to close that email because wow. there were hundreds of emails coming in. And I said, no, man, we clearly need to deal with this issue. So I went to that meeting. And when they said, um, any questions, I just jump up and said, no, but I have a presentation on mental health. And I just went up there and I just read all the statistics to them. And they were just like, wow. <laughs> um, we did not know this. I said, yeah, mental health needs money. Thank you. It takes cash to care. Yeah. And so that was... Big ups. <laughs> you. That was a big one. That was a priceless moment that I would not have even thought was even possible. But um, yeah. I admire your chops. And I find that if, if our advocacy isn't strong um, and willing to do all things, you know, by all means to help the lives, to help save the lives of others, then I think that that is probably one of the, the best priceless moments I've ever heard of. Yeah. And lastly, what is your definition of redirection? Having been redirected in so many ways from diagnosis to finding yourself and um, showing up the way you do, what's your definition of redirection? I think I have a different definition than mm -hmm. most people do because for me, redirection is 
more of a journey than a destination. Mm. So I don't see myself as the person who, oh, you were going through these issues and now you're fine and that's the be all and end all. I understand that life is ebb and flow. I understand that you're going to have down days, you're going to have up days, you're going to have in between days and you always have to learn how to gauge what you're going through mm-hmm. and shape shift and adjust to manage whatever it is and show up however you need to and just be consistent and a lot of times people think that consistency mean you're giving 150 percent all the time but really it mean if i have 150 percent today that's good and if i have 30 tomorrow i'm still going and if i have five the next day i'm still going and then the next day i might have 70 and i'm like all right this is this is the best for the week so far Mm -hmm. and then the next time again it go back down or it go back up and i'm so it's really just showing up all the time no matter what life throws at you just keep showing up and keep adjusting because you have to just roll. I appreciate it. What's the song? You lick him down. <laughs> you pick him up, you, you lick him, him down. down. You, you, you pick, him, pick up, him up, you, you lick him down. He bounce right back. What a hard man for dead. Well, yeah. you, Tammy Sansai, um, her name is Tamika Coley, but, you know, she goes by Tammy Sansai. Thank you so very much for being frank and and candid and for showing us a different side and a different face literally yeah. of what um of, of mental health awareness and i i would suggest of course anyone out there to pick up a copy of her book i thought her poems were very thoughtful very open very honest very sensitive and it gives you a better idea especially if you're really trying to actively learn how to show up for other people and to understand how to serve other people um i think it is a great resource and speaking of resources what i'll try to do is i'll try to get some resources for tammy so that at the end of this episode we'll throw it up on the screen so that you can have an idea of what your resources are in case you need help or in case you know someone who may need the help um thank you for watching thank you for making it another episode of redirection with terry carell thank you for sticking and staying if there's any part of this conversation that resonated with you please let us know in the comments let us know in the chat leave us the ratings and the reviews and of course share Sharing is not just caring, but sharing allows the community to understand more so that we can be a more informed, more educated, and a more compassionate society. Again, use the hashtag TK Redirection so that other persons can join the conversation as well. So again, thank you so very much. Thank you for being a hard gal for dead. We will see you guys next week. Take care. Thanks to our partners, MasterCard, Heineken 00, Toyota Jamaica, Spaces, Commercial Concepts, Bresche, Beauty Brands by MDS, and Go Shore Courier.